You are now listening to the May 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. And begin our program with Christianese 101. Hello everyone, my name is Grace, and I am the host of this program, Christianese 101. Unity, sharing, friends, love. How do you feel when you hear these words? Try imagining you are dating someone. I feel happy, I feel the warmth, and I crave that warmth. A word that we hear often at church is fellowship. Fellowship is from the Greek word koinonia. So for today's program, we will be learning about the words koinonia and fellowship. Fellowship is translated from the noun koinonia, which is derived from the Greek word koinons, meaning companions, associates, friends, and partners. The verb form of koinonia is koinon. To have a share in a thing, to connect, to have in common, or when a group of people have something in common. Out of all these different definitions, it is easiest to understand when you use it with the context of partnership. If you were to hear someone speak about their coworker or partner, then how does that make you feel? Being a partner is when two people become one with the same object. As a partner, you gladly give your all to your counterpart and you share everything with each other. It means you will be happy in sickness and in health, even through the struggles. Thus, koinonia has the meaning of sharing something. In the Bible, koinonia is translated into fellowship. It was widely used in expressing the relationship between the saints and the early church. It represents the idle state of friendship or gathering among Christians. However, koinonia does not refer only to fellowship. It covers everything from the fellowship that should be between Christians to the triune God's fellowship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Here, the meaning of sharing and being close to each other is not merely as a friend, but through a bond that cannot be removed until death. It causes us to realize how deeply we are in fellowship with God and how we as Christians must be with one another. However, when juxtaposed, the fellowship of Christians and the fellowship with God turn out not as opposites, but as closely related. It is because the fellowship of Christians do not simply end in personal fellowship, but in the body of Christ as a member of God's kingdom. The phrase, in Christ, that Paul often refers to best represents the core and essentials of Christianity. God called us to have fellowship with Christ, which means that we are united to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. As you can see from Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, living in faith through Christ, the Son of God, is living as one in His death and resurrection. The fellowship with Christ is not merely a personal experience, but an experience pertaining to the body of Christ. 
This is done through fellowship between brothers and sisters of the church. In this way, we find that fellowship among Christians is not a choice but a must. A good example of our fellowship is the parable of the body parts written in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Speaking of the complete love you should have between your fellow Christians. To clear things up, fellowship is not simply just eating with your fellow Christians after service. It means you should not vaguely say hello or routinely greet people mindlessly. We are all on the same boat and heading towards the same destination. Whether it be your coworker, partner, friend, or spouse, it is through this fellowship that forms a relationship with a bond that cannot be separated except through death. And with this kind of cohesion, you begin building a relationship with a triune God. To conclude our session, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I hope that you will have fellowship in truth and that you can worship the Lord with your life. With that, we will conclude today's session. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Today we wrap up our series on relational withdrawal. This is podcast number three of three, and we're going to touch on something that I consider a life-changing truth today. That's how false repentance produces a false hope of change. And this podcast comes from a larger teaching series. It's called The Sex Spiral, forgiven and free from pornography. And if you're new to the the podcast, what The Sex Spiral is, it's a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, this bondage or addiction to pornography. Make no doubt about it. Porn is a series of predictable habits that we've created ourselves. The bad news is that we don't realize we don't realize that. The good news is that when you listen, as you review and you start applying this material to your lives, you, by God's grace, you will, you will break free from the bondage of porn. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss how false repentance produces a false hope of change. Number two, how true repentance is facing those who have been affected by my sin and accepting that responsibility, the full responsibility for the upcoming consequences of that sin. And number three, we're going to learn how compulsive and unrepentant people say they're sorry. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is Moving Toward Restoration. So for many people, confession is something that they do with God. We say, you know what, I I really mean it this time, God. I promise you I'm not going to do it again. And the promises between God and me. And many times we think that we've repented, but we really haven't. And the result is is relational withdrawal from God. So key point number five is false repentance produces a false hope of change. And this is another huge key point. False repentance produces a false hope of change. So in other words, a false repentance produces hopelessness. Because if we think that we're repenting and my life's not changing, then all of a sudden... Things aren't changing for the better, and I keep doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing, but it's not working. So there's a false repentance. I'm not really doing. I'm not really letting, I'm really not confessing what I need to confess that last 10 or 15% in my life, right? This is where suicidal thoughts come in. This is where depression sets in. Because true repentance produces a transparency. It's an eagerness to make amends. You've got a renewed joy and a renewed confidence in God. Repentance brings peace. It brings intimacy. It brings joy. 
Key point number six, true repentance is facing those who have been affected by my sin. True repentance is facing those who have been affected by my sin and accepting full responsibility for the upcoming consequences without justification or blame. So true repentance is facing those who have been affected by my sin and accepting full responsibility for the upcoming consequences without justification and blame. So when I do this, I move towards relationships. I move toward restoration and even restitution. Compulsive, unrepentant people don't move to those things, guys. Unrepentant people say, I'm sorry. And sometimes we say it with tears. But yet we slowly move back into isolation, into um, relational withdrawal, back into the spiral. It's this idea that you are repenting from your sin, meaning that you're never going to go back. You're never going to go back to where you were. It's this striving towards godliness that you're going to make the conscious, willful effort to do something that you've never done before. So what we want to do tonight is, what's your biggest takeaway from tonight's lesson? Let's check in. If we've got sin to confess, let's make sure we do that. Let's make sure we're using this time to actually start confessing the 10 or 15% of, of stuff that we're afraid to confess. you got to keep in mind, if we're not going to confess it here, where else are we going to confess this stuff, right? And then uh, let's talk about what the Lord showed you from the teaching tonight. Moving toward restoration is it's like ripping off a Band-Aid. We can either confess sin all at one time to get it over with, or we can just tug on it day after day, which ends up causing more pain. We all have a choice in this. We can choose to stay a compulsive, unrepentant person, or we can choose to confess our sin, all of it, not keeping back the 10 or 20% like we normally do. It's normal to do that. The problem, though, is that it doesn't bring healing. It only it only provides a false hope. It's this illusion of healing. It brings a false sense of security that things are really going to change over time, but they're not. They can't because the truth hasn't been brought out to the light. One way that we know that we're moving forward towards restoration is by protecting yourself online. By taking this initiative to install some type of internet filter on all of your computers and your devices. I've been using Covenant Eyes internet filtering software for years. I, I recommend it. Um, let me encourage you. If you don't have something to protect you and your family, visit CovenantEyes.com today. And when you do, you can receive a 30-day free trial. Just put my full name in the promo box with no spaces. And if you sign up, you're going to be supporting the Ministry of Seven Places and this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our Grace Groups. It's a weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, divorced, everybody is welcome. You are invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church, 
We are in building A, room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. And if you've got questions, I would love to respond to them. You can visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power, my friend, is the very name. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
Heart and Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Serving the City based on Jeremiah chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. So what we're doing these weeks is we've been looking at aspects of Redeemer's vision for ministry, which we are recounting as we get ready for the next 10 years of ministry in the city through the RISE campaign. This particular passage, if you've been around Redeemer much at all over the years, you've heard this before. You've heard us talk about Jeremiah 29, but I did a little research and discovered that we actually, we haven't preached on this except once in 27 years, and I'm sure those of you who are here 14 years ago, remember the outline perfectly, but uh, a few of you probably don't, so I thought I'd refresh your memory by looking at the passage, this rich passage right now. What's happening here? The Babylonian Empire was the dominant military force, power, in that part of the world. Israel rebelled against it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, sent an army who uh, conquered Israel again. But this time, they did something besides just conquer it, just uh, invade it and conquer it. They did what uh, the Babylonians at that time did in order to subjugate unusually subversive and rebellious societies. What they did was they took the professional classes, the leaders of Israel. The exiles are the leaders, notice. They're the prophets, they're the priests. It says the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, skilled workers, artisans. In other words, it was the professional classes and the leaders that were taken captive and brought to Babylon. Why? Because they had to live in Babylon for the next couple of generations. They expected them to culturally assimilate, to lose their distinctive beliefs, and uh, eventually get to the place where they were uh, not resistant to military domination. And because the exiles knew that that was the strategy. When they got there, they refused to move into Babylon. Uh, They settled outside on the Kabar Canal, and they said, let's not have anything to do with this wicked city that's done all this to us. And their prophets, as you can see in verse 8 and 9, were prophesying to them that uh, uh, in just a couple years, God will bring us back. And then they get a letter from God through Jeremiah, and it's absolutely shocking. And it describes what the people of God's relationship to this great pluralistic pagan city should be. And essentially, what God says to them is three things. Live and settle there, don't separate or withdraw. 
respectfully resist there, don't give in to their values or assimilate. But sacrificially love there. Don't be selfish or defensive or contemptuous. When you put all three of those things together, it's just a remarkable picture, and it was very shocking. The first shock, as I just mentioned, is in the very first part of the letter, verses 4, 5, and 6, where God says, live there, settle down there, don't separate or withdraw. Uh, Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters a marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the number there, do not decrease. God is saying, stop living as refugees. Make this home. Now, this is remarkable. Plant uh, and eat and uh, marry and raise children there. I mean, God says, you left a place where everybody believed like you do, and now you've come into this very pluralistic pagan city. Back in Jerusalem, if you walk by an idol shrine, you should tear it down. Here, you're going to walk by idol shrines on on your way to work every day. But then he says, I want you to make this home. This is your home. Settle down. Live here. Now, some people say, well, that's okay. That was for the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Does that have anything, this text have anything to say to us at all? Well, yeah, why? What does it have to say to Christians today? Well, first of all, in the New Testament, all Christians are called exiles. By the way, American Christians constantly forget this, but the fact is that all Christians are called exiles. James chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The uh, Christian teachers address all Christians as exiles. Why? Well, the word for exiles that is used in the New Testament is the word that means to be resident aliens. Both aspects are important. What's a resident alien? On the one hand, a resident is someone who's not a tourist, not someone who shows up in a city for a couple of years in order to get a New York kind of thing on their resume and kind of uses it as a theme park but can't wait to get somewhere where you can get a lot more house for your money. (laughs) You're a resident, not a tourist. Also, you're a resident, not a fifth-column kind of undermining force putting on a nice, you know, being publicly polite to people but just despising and hating everybody's guts. You're a resident, but you're alien, and we'll get to that in a second. You're still, values are still different, but you're a resident. So in that sense, of course, Christians are all called to be exiles, but I, I think I can actually draw even a closer link here when it comes to how the Jews were brought into this city through social forces. It's interesting that in verses 1 and 2, we're told that who brought these Israelites to Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. He carried them into exile. Verse 1, right? And then, very strikingly, in fact, God God says it twice to make sure you don't miss the point. In verse 4, he says, but I carried you into exile. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, carried you into exile. Then God says, I carried you into exile. And in verse 7, he says it again to make sure you didn't miss it. Here's what God is saying to the children of Israel. He's saying, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, social forces have swept you into a pluralistic urban society. Social forces have done that. But you know what? I use those social forces. I've got purposes. And he tells you down in verse 10 and 11, he says, I want you, not back where you were in charge, where everybody was like you, I want you in this pluralistic urban society because I'm going to do good things in your heart. 
I'm going to refine you. I'm going to change you. And I'm going to bless the city too. Yes, you've been brought into city through social forces, but there are my social forces. Now, what link do we have here today? Well, cities all around the world are exploding. Ed Glazer, professor at Harvard University, says that on the average, every month, five million people are moving from countrysides into cities. Five million people a month across the whole world. But you realize Rio de Janeiro, by the way, is six million people. That's like a new Rio de Janeiro every six weeks is popping up. That many new urbanites every month. 200 years ago, 5% of human population lived in cities. Today, it's 50%. It's on its way to 75%. In, say, North America or in many parts of the West, the cities may not be growing quite that much, but younger people are flooding into cities. They disproportionately want to live in cities. So cities that used to be actually in trouble are regenerating. What does this mean? Here's what it means. You've got to have churches everywhere there's people. But God is sending the people of the world into cities faster than Christians are willing to go. And that's not right. A friend of mine, Roger Greenway, wrote this some years ago. He says, it may be helpful to reflect on the fact that urbanization as a present fact of life for most of the human family is a reality under the providential control of God. For Acts 17, verse 26 and 27 says, quote, God determined the exact places where men should live. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, unquote. In light of these verses, city growth is part of God's plan in history. God in our time is moving climactically through a variety of social, political, and economic factors to bring Earth's peoples into closer contact with one another, into greater interaction and interdependence, and in the earshot of the gospel. The sign of our time is the city. Through worldwide migration to the city, God may be setting the stage for Christian missions' greatest and perhaps final hour. God is moving the people of the world into cities faster than the church is willing to go. We need to have churches everywhere there's people, but God is moving people into cities faster than the church is willing to go, and that's not right. For example, there's 50 to 60,000 people a year moving, not just moving, there's a, a net increase of 50 to 60,000 population of New York City every year. Our population is increasing 50 to 60,000 every year. That means over 20 years, from 2010 to 2030, there'll be a million people more in New York City. Now, that's about the size, that's actually a little more, but about the size of Charlotte, North Carolina. Question, how many churches are there in Charlotte, North Carolina? Do you think during the next 20 years, we will be seeing that many churches alone started in New York City. No way. What does that mean? God is moving the people of the world into the cities, and the church is not willing to go as fast as God is moving people into the cities. And that's not right. God is saying, these are social forces that are building up these cities, but they're my social forces, and I have a purpose and plan for it. Now, be the people of God in the city. This is the reason why, by the way, around Redeemer... I don't think it's unjustified to say, if you're a Christian and you can live in New York City, do it. If you're a Christian and you can live here, live here. If you say, well, I'm only going to be here for one year, well, okay, make it two. I'm only going to be here for two years, I'll make it three or four. Why? Because you see, even though you need Christians and churches everywhere, there's people, frankly, the churches are not going where God is sending the people, and that's not right. 
So first of all, make the city your home. Secondly, the second thing God says here, though, is don't assimilate. Respectfully resist the values of that place. Don't assimilate. See, what's really intriguing is on the one, many, many people have noticed the tension here. Because in the very beginning of the letter, uh, God says, look, I want you to settle there. I want you to settle down. I want you to enjoy the place. I want you to really be part of the economic and social fabric of the place. Don't just be kind of tourists. Really be part of the fabric of the place. But then in verse 10, he says, but at the end of 70 years, I will take you home. And, by the way, if you keep on going in in Jeremiah, especially get down to chapters 50 and so on, God says, and if Babylon doesn't repent, I'm going to judge it. So on the one hand, he says, I want you to live here. I want you to make this your home. I want you to appreciate it. I want you to be part of the economic and social fabric. And yet, on the other hand, he says, it's actually still not your real home. And you must never completely assimilate to the values of that new home. Because I'm going to judge this place if they don't repent. Now, it would be so much easier to either just be here and assimilate and just become, you know, just like everybody else, or just get out and go somewhere else where we're not constantly in tension, but that's not what God says. Now, you say, wow, this is really hard. Well, yes, it is. This is being an ambassador. See, it's interesting that in the New Testament, the Bible says Christians are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. And maybe you've heard that term, and it's very, I don't know, you know, it's very inspiring. But maybe we haven't thought about it, at least I haven't until recently. Because to be an ambassador, a good ambassador, is an incredible skill position. It is extraordinarily difficult to be a good ambassador. Think about this. An ambassador is from country B, okay, but is living in country A. Represents country B to country A. Now, what does it mean to be a good ambassador? It's very hard. First of all, the ambassador has to be completely bilingual, hopefully speaking the language of country A without an accent. So the ambassador is completely coherent to the people in country A. But then secondly, the ambassador is trying to always, he's he's always trying to show, right, or she is always trying to show links, bridges between the two cultures, commonalities, Ways we can work together, ways we can do things together, right? It's an ambassador. But then thirdly, that ambassador, though, must never forget that he or she is representing the interests and the values of a different country. And the Bible, when it says we're supposed to be ambassadors, when I think about what it really takes to be a true diplomat, to be a true ambassador, that's to really represent your own country, but at the same time be absolutely conversant with and at home in and, and uh, uh, fluent in the culture and language of another. Now we have it, and you realize how hard that is? Every Christian is called to be that. Why? Because Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, your real citizenship, O Christian, is in the city of God. We're all supposed to be citizens, good citizens, obviously, of an earthly city, but your real true citizenship is in the city of God. Now, that tension is, that's a tough thing. Let's think about it for a second. It means uh, when Jesus Christ actually says, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, to his disciples, you're a city on the hill. What he means is in every earthly city, you are a kind of mini city. 
you represent the interests and the values of the heavenly city. In every, you might say in every earthly city, you are alt.city.org. Because the values of the kingdom of God are never the values of the surrounding culture. You say, well, how could that be? Well, it's a big subject, and of course every culture is different, but let me just say this about our Western culture. In our Western culture, the building block, the supreme value is the individual self. We live in a culture of self-assertion, a culture of self-definition, a culture that says the individual self should only be in a relationship as long as it's fulfilling and actualizing the individual self, otherwise it's out. And of course, in our culture, we, we're all having actually, in Western culture, institutions are in crisis and communities are in somewhat in crisis because of that individualism. Now, the Christian understanding is very different because the kingdom of God's values are cross-shaped. They're shaped by the cross. How so? All right, well, here's an example I've used elsewhere recently, but here we go. In every relationship, if you're in a community or in a relationship, if everybody's saying, me first, relationships will always break, constantly be blowing up. Now, children, by the way, don't have to be taught to say me first. They just say it, and you say, well, it's be- you know. In fact, they actually are doing it before they even can say it. Almost as soon as they can speak, they say, me first. But if you go into any community relationship in which everybody's saying me first, the relationships are going to blow up. Just for an example, let me use marriage, the most intense of all human relationships. If one or both partners in a marriage, one or both, are saying me first, the marriage will struggle or die. But if each spouse is saying you first, your needs are more important than mine. My life for yours. You're in for years of richness. But now get this. Jesus Christ came into the world saying, my life for yours. Jesus Christ came into the world saying, you first. When that becomes the core, self-sacrificing love and justice, that's a whole different kind of society. Now, by the way, notice what I just said? basis of the, Christian, of the kingdom of God is not personal advancement and accruing personal individual happiness and power. It's actually self-renunciation, self-denial, self-sacrifice, and serving other people. In other words, it's sacrificial love and justice. And by the way, sacrificial love and justice always go together. It's silly to say the individual should go, you know, me first, and then say I'm for justice. To say me first and I'm for justice, my goodness, you realize... If you're after justice for the downtrodden, there's no way to give justice for the downtrodden unless those who are not downtrodden give something up. You can't do justice for the downtrodden unless those who are not downtrodden make some kind of sacrifice. So unless you're into you first, you're not for justice. So the Christian values are radically different. So let's just take three, sex, money, and power. You can use sex as a way of saying me first. I would like to have sex, you say, to somebody else. I'd like to have sex with you, but I don't want to give myself to you. I don't want to lose my independence. I don't want to marry you. I don't want to lose my independence. Well, then that's, you know, that's the values of Babylon. That's the values of the earthly city, at least in the West. On the other hand, in Christianity, the idea is sex is only a way to give yourself to somebody completely. It's a way of saying you first. It's a way of saying, I want to give you my whole life. 
I want to be economically and legally in every other way one with you, and I want to give to you. Or money. Money is not like, well, let's see how much I can give away to charity and not really hurt my lifestyle. No, no. All the money is God's. None of it actually is yours. And that changes completely your attitude toward money. Sex, money, and power look radically different inside the kingdom of God. And look very, very different than that, of course, out in the rest of the city. Now, here's the question. How do we do this? Because I can tell you, being here 27 years, I either see Christians who show up here, hold their nose until they can get back to where things are more comfortable, where they can get more money for their, they can get more house for their money. Or they come here and they keep a veneer of Christianity in many cases, but they actually assimilate to the individualistic ethos. They use sex, money, and power and still come looking for inspiration on Sunday. But God says no. I want you to make this place your home, but remember it's not your home. I want you to make this place your home, but remember it's not your ultimate true home. It's not your true country. How do we do that? Point three. The third thing that, and the most shocking thing that uh, God says here, and by the way, the one thing I think is actually the key to understanding how you get the power to live like this is verse 7. It's the, most famous, it's the most famous verse in the whole section. It's also key to understanding it. There it is in verse 7. Also, he says, God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, first of all, what is being asked for? What is he calling people for? First of all, it says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Some of you know, because we've been around, we've talked about this at Redeemer. There's only one Hebrew word used there, shalom. It says, seek the shalom of the city of Babylon. But there's no one English word that has the entire lexical range of the Hebrew word shalom. It means, shalom means prosperity, yes, but all kinds. It means social flourishing, economic flourishing. It means spiritual and psychological flourishing. For a community to have shalom means the people are happy and they have meaning in life. It means that there's justice in economic relationships. It means there's great prosperity. People have money. Uh, there's a great deal of commerce. It, it means wholeness and health of, in every aspect, psychologically, socially, spiritually, economically, physically, every way. And it says you're supposed to seek that for Babylon. And then it says you're supposed to pray to the Lord for it. Now, what is going on here? There are many people who, reading this, notice something and they say, well, it's not all that radical. God is basically just asking them to be pragmatic. What's the pragmatic? Well, it says, pray to the Lord for it. If it prospers, you prosper. So some people say, well, all God is trying to say is, hey, let's be practical here. Let's not chafe. Let's not undermine. Let's not get angry. Let's not all that. Hey, let's just fit in. Don't make waves. Make as much money as you can. You know, make the place a good place because it'll prosper, and as soon as you make some money, you can get out of there. So it's just pragmatic, that's all. It's not saying put on a nice public face underneath, despising, and feel contempt for everybody around and can't wait till you leave. No, because it says you must pray for the shalom of Babylon. Do you know how astonishing this is? See, they have been told by their prophets and by God to pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. 
Go to Psalms 122, and you'll see what, how they do that. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's there. They do. They were called to do it. But let me just give you one verse from Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. You can't pray for Babylon unless you love it. Unless you love it. God is saying, I want you to love this city and to go to the mat to make it a great place for everybody to live, even your enemies. I mean, to be telling these people that you're supposed to seek the peace of and pray for the prosperity of their enemies, it made no sense to them. I'm sure it didn't make any sense to them. They would say, this is absolutely crazy. How could you possibly do that? But that's what, exactly what God is calling them to do. Here's what he's saying. I mean, listen, I want you to know that as a pastor, if somebody comes to me and says, I'm really having a problem with bitterness, I'm really angry, somebody has wronged me, among other things I would say to them, I said, well, if you want to get over your anger, make a list of the things that he or she really needs in his or her life, and every day, next couple weeks, pray for them for those things. And there is nothing that is more able to suck out your anger and start to create some kind of love in your heart towards someone. And that's exactly what God is saying to them. He's saying, stop feeling like victims. Stop walking around saying, well, when we were in power and when we get in power again, stop thinking you're going to take over. Stop being angry. Stop your self-pity. Love them. And then do everything you can to make that a great city for the people who don't believe like you do and in many cases are your opponents and your enemies. Now, Christians should not be shocked at this. Are you? Listen, this is what it means to be an exile. And all Christians are exiles. And if you live in New York City, this is supposed to be your attitude toward New York City right there. Same thing. And you say, well, how can you do that? Well, Christians, we shouldn't be shocked at all. Now, I have to say, Christians are. Plenty of Christians, at least in America, plenty of Christians I know, hate cities. They will not go there in spite of the fact that increasingly that's where the people are to be ministered to. When they are here, they really just can't wait because they're saying to get out. Saying, I get so much more house for my money. I can, you know, I'd be surrounded by people who are more like me. They just can't wait. In other words, all this stuff makes no sense to them, but it shouldn't be startling to any Christian. Why not? Well, think about what we're being told to do. We're being told to incarnate ourselves. We're being told to limit ourselves, to move into places where you have to squish yourself into little apartments. Uh, to go places that are expensive and more difficult to live. And then pour yourself out for people and don't adapt their values even if they despise you for it. And yet pour yourself out for people and do justice and mercy and make the place a great place for the live, even people who don't believe what you believe about Jesus. Yes, tell them about Jesus, but love them and work for them even if they don't believe in him. Does that sound like somebody? Jesus Christ was in heaven, and he moved into our neighborhood. It's called the Incarnation, a rather tiny apartment compared to where he was. And he came and he gave himself for us. And see, if you see Jesus Christ dying for enemies and say, look how he treated his enemies, what an inspiring example. That might inspire you, but it also might kind of, you know, come down. It also might be a little bit daunting. Don't see him dying for them. See him dying for you. 
Romans 5 says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we were indifferent, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ went into exile to save us. Jesus Christ gave his life when we were yet enemies. And if you see him coming into this world and saying, my life for you, not me first, you first, moving into our neighborhood, as it were, taking on all of the inconveniences. But here's the difference. God basically, I think, said to his son, the father said to the son, son, you're going to move into this place. But guess what? They'll only prosper if you die. You're going to have to die for their sins on the cross. And Jesus said, yes. Look, if you see him doing that, then you'll be able to live like this in the city. You won't want to dominate New York City you won't want to despise New York City. You certainly, though, won't want to just be, have your Christian distinctiveness absorbed by New York City either. Rather, here's what you're going to do. You're going to have influence. If you live like this, we're going to have influence, but it's the only kind of influence that's safe to have because it's non-coercive influence. It's the influence that leads people to say, what do you believe that you live like this? Let's pray. Our Father, we want to see more and more Christians make their home here. We want to see more and more Christians um, be resident aliens here, living sacrificially, doing love and justice, yet being in creative tension with our neighbors and our friends here who don't share our values. We want to live like exiles. We want to live like exiles, and we can only do that when we see the ultimate exile, Jesus Christ, who died for his enemies, us. And that... When that's burned into our minds and hearts, we'll be able to live the way he did. So thank you, Lord, for giving us your, uh, uh, your letter. Thank you for this letter. Help us to read it and take it to heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.